Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of First Chronicles. Recall that uh, over the next few weeks we're going to be looking at First and Second Chronicles and looking at some of the stories there to encourage us and to help us. So I want you to look at First Chronicles chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he said. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity that you have given us for the time that you have allotted to us to hear your voice in your word. Guide our thinking now, I pray. Help us to the end that we would learn to pray, that we'd understand more of your purposes. Help us, we pray, in these next few minutes, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jabez was a pain. At least that's what his mother thought when she named him. She had a pretty hard labor with him, so she named him Jabez, which comes from the Hebrew word for pain. But even though he might have been considered a pain to his mother, nevertheless, God says about him that he was honored, more more honorable than his brothers. Now, why did God give him that honored status? Why does it say that about him? It's because he prayed. He called out to God and asked God to bless him. And because of that prayer, God honored that man. Now, here's what's important to see. Right in the middle of nine chapters of genealogy. And if, if you take the time to read the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, it's going to be nine chapters of what looks like unending genealogy with a break every once in a while, just periodically to say something about some of those people. And this is one of those times. Something caused the chronicler to stop here, to pause in the middle of this gigantic genealogy to devote these two verses to a guy named Jabez and his prayer. He evidently thought that prayer was important enough to stop and say something about it. It's got to be important. So here's what I would say God is saying to us. Look at Jabez and learn to pray. All right? Look at Jabez and learn to pray. Now, one method of learning is to look at the negative first. So I want to mention how you can learn learning how not to pray. Okay? Let's start there. Can we just repray this prayer? Can we just repray this prayer? Um, Several years ago, and and as I thought about this, I'm thinking, wow. A guy by the name of Bruce Wilkinson wrote a book called The Prayer of Jabez. And as, as just yesterday, as I was thinking about this sermon, I thought, wait a minute, that was 20 years ago. Most of you here were probably not even old enough to read yet, much less know about this book. But it was a really 
popular book. I mean, it was, everybody was buying this book, The Prayer of Jabez by Bruce Wilkinson. And he encourages you to pray the prayer of Jabez. All right? Here's what he wrote. I picked up my Bible and read verse 10, the prayer of Jabez. Something in his prayer would explain the mystery of why Jabez was honored and why God answered his prayer. Pulling a chair up to the yellow counter, I bent over my Bible and reading the prayer over and over, I searched with all my heart for the future God had for someone as ordinary as I. The next morning, I prayed Jabez's prayer word for word. And the next... And the next, 30 years later, I haven't stopped. If you were to ask me what sentence, other than my prayer for my salvation, has revolutionized my life and ministry the most, I will tell you that it was the cry of Jabez, who is still remembered not for what he did, but for what he prayed, and and for what happened next. In the pages... to mean, don't let Satan interfere with my work for you. So we spiritualize it. We just make it say what we want to say. But you got to be careful when you do that in Old Testament passages. In fact, I would suggest you don't do that ever. But we tend to do that at times, don't we? Uh, For example, here's a good example. 2 Chronicles 7.14. You say, okay, what's that one? It'll be real familiar. Here's what it says. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I have heard that sermon preached on the Sunday before the 4th of July. I have heard it preached at patriotic rallies that if America would just, as it says, if America... Who, are, who is called by my name should humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive and I will heal their land. We've heard that countless times. The problem with, with spiritualizing that, right? Spiritualizing that is we are not called by God's name. The United States does not have a covenant with God. It assumes, of course, that we Americans are obviously God's people. And, 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 uh, and now, God has given us this as part of his word, and it speaks to us today, right? The problem is it's not speaking to Americans as if we're something special. It's not speaking to us at all. But, you know, the way to learn to pray is not merely pointing out where others have been wrong. If you want to learn to pray, here's with Jabez, okay? God included this in the scriptures. In fact, he included it in the middle of this gigantic genealogy. There's got to be something here for us. Well, if you want to learn to pray, you need to know what Jabez meant by his prayer, why this prayer was recorded for Israel some 900 years later, and how we need to pray in light of Jesus. Okay? So, the first... We need to learn how to pray by understanding what Jabez prayed. What did he mean when he prayed this prayer? Jabez prayed that his destiny would not, or that his name would not define his destiny. Okay? 
The prayer is simply this. Lord, don't make my name define my destiny. Now look, it says that... um, You know, it's even hard to find that verse because it's in that gigantic genealogy, right? Um, Jabez called upon or cried out to God. He cried out to God for this. He prayed. He earnestly sought God. Here, then, is a man of faith. He He cried out to God because he understood that God was the only one who could do what he was asking. All right? Obviously, he's a man of faith. He prayed, God, instead of letting my name become my destiny, enlarge my territory. Now, Jabez was not merely about expanding his real estate. That's not what it's about. I mean, look, frankly, I wouldn't mind praying this prayer so I could have a bigger piece of land. I got two, little over two acres, right? And I know my wife would love another five. Okay, so maybe I should pray this prayer. God, enlarge our, enlarge our territory. God, give us, give us a few more acres, okay? I mean, she'd, she'd like those five acres because, oh, let me just aside here. This isn't in my sermon notes. She's from Iowa, and according to Becca, the dirt in Iowa is what it's going to be like on the new earth. It can grow anything. You don't have to do anything to it. The soil around here is just plain old angry. But she would like five more acres to work on, you know? And is that what Jabez is saying? Give me more real estate. No. You see, God promised the land to his people, and they were to conquer it for the glory of God by faith. Look over at Exodus 34. Exodus 34 All right, verses, Exodus 34, verses 10 through 14. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant, a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in its midst. Now, now what is is God saying here? He's saying, I'm going to do something marvelous. I'm going to drive out these people from before you so that all the nations will know who I am. Now, note, they have to believe that in order for it to happen, right? He promised that. Do you wonder, and you just heard Numbers 14, do you wonder why God got so angry at those people? Some of us might look at that and say, wow, God, that's pretty harsh. You're going to wipe out a whole generation before they can go in. That's kind of harsh, really. You remember what those people said? Oh, we can't do it. Look at those people. They're all... uh, all these terrible things, all the way back. And they knew this all the way back in their beginning. What had God promised Abraham? To give his descendants that land. Do you ever wonder, you ever wonder about that really weird part of, part of Noah? 
where Noah curses Canaan? In Genesis 9, Noah curses Canaan. You see, that's weird because it wasn't Canaan who saw his father's nakedness. It was, it was one, I can't remember which of the brothers it was. So why is he cursing Canaan? Well, look, what is that saying to these people on the way to the promised land? Canaan is cursed. The land is yours. Go take it. Right? All of these things. Um, all of these things are playing into it. God had made this incredible promise. and He kept saying it all the way through up to the point where they're going into the land. That's why I got so mad because they did not believe him. After all these things he had did to make a promise to them, they did not believe him. And the conquest of the land could only be accomplished by believing the promises of God. And it would display his glory. Now, Jabez lived in the time of the judges. And under Joshua, they'd conquered great tracts of land, and they divided it up, but they were left to conquer it, right? They didn't, with Joshua, they didn't didn't get it all done, right? They got the strategic places done, but then they had to finish the conquest. And that's what the book of Judges should have been about, but it wasn't. It wasn't, was it? No. So Jabez prayed, O God, fulfill your promises and reveal your glory. Enlarge my territory. I want to take more by faith in God so that his name will be seen. That's what he means. He believed that God would remain faithful to his covenant. Jabez honored and loved God, and his confidence was grounded in the God who had made those promises. He lived in the time of Judges. He was supposed to conquer the land. So he said, okay, Lord, help me to do that. That's what God intended him to do. So Jabez prayed, God, instead of letting my name become my destiny, enlarge my territory. He goes on, God, instead of letting my name become my destiny, let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I'll be free from pain. What is that all about? Because his name was pain, given him by his mother, Jabez makes a reference to the curse and the judgment of God. So he prays, oh God, don't let my life be defined in terms of your judgment. Don't let my life be be defined in terms of judgment. He wants life characterized by God's what? Power. Let your hand be with me. God's power. I want your power to be with me. He wants a life characterized by God working for his good, not by the effects of the curse. He wants a life of God's blessing, not judgment. He wants God to show himself power through him. And God answers his prayer. So here's Jabez. How do we learn to pray? A man of faith who prays that God would fulfill his covenant promises and bless his life by his power. So you can learn to pray by learning what Jabez meant, right? That sounds like we could pray that prayer. But the Chronicle recorded this for people who've returned to their land and who are discouraged. And so learn to pray by understanding why this prayer was recorded for this remnant that's returned to Judah, right? If you want to understand why the Chronicler recorded this prayer, why did he put that in there? Well, what's his audience? Remember his audience? Remember we talked about this? This is the remnant that's returned. They're building the temple. They're they're part of the Persian Empire. So if you want to understand why the Chronicler recorded this prayer for people living 900 years later, there's a gap of 900 years here, okay? We need to review some of their history. So the people during the time of the judges, 
did not by faith conquer the land. Instead, what happened? They proved unfaithful, and so God had them um, conquered periodically by those people or the people around them. And then they would repent, right? God would remove the curse of that judgment. They'd be okay for a while, and then they'd return to their idolatry. And so instead of conquering the land, um, they didn't. And they didn't, not because of their lack of weapons, not because they couldn't, they lacked the strength, but because they lacked faith. They lacked faith. Now, they eventually won all the land that they were supposed to under David, and Solomon even expanded the territory so that it was almost an empire. But soon, you remember, the nation split into Judah in the south and Israel in the north, and then in 722 B.C., the Assyrians wiped Israel off the map. And in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians wiped Judah off the map. And here they are. But God still gave them hope because he had, the prophets had come and prophesied about a coming king, right? They had that hope of a king who was going to come, right? You look at, um, we're all familiar with... Um, Can't remember if it's Isaiah 7 or 9, where God says, right? Um, I'm going to give you this king. The government's going to be on his shoulders. He's going to be the, the prince of peace, right? All that. Um, uh, Isaiah 11, there's going to be this, this little branch that grows out of the stump. When the tree's all chopped down and destroyed, there's going to be a branch or there's going to be a, a twig that grows out of that stump. That's going to be your king. And, and all kinds of marvelous things were happening. So God would bless Israel again by means of a promised Davidic king. Right? But now, here's the deal. Now the people have returned to the land. And there is no great son of David on the throne. Their temple is not glorious. They are nothing but a remnant. And they're nothing but an insignificant province in the whole empire of Persia. You see... And there's the tension. Has God forgotten his promise? Has he forgotten his people? In this tension, it's in that tension that you find this people discouraged and disheartened. All right? So you've got to understand, there's the tension. Here we are, an insignificant people with no king. Our temple isn't that great. We're nothing more than an insignificant province in the whole Persian Empire. Where are the promises of God? And so what the chronicler does is give them this prayer while they're in that situation. Let me tell you about Jabez and the prayer he prayed. He says, The prayer of Jabez, whose name means pain, reminds you of the curse and reminds you then for the longing for God to remove the curse and his judgment and to restore blessing. So a people discouraged and desperate and disheartened, he gives them this prayer. Are you with me? So he says to them, like Jabez, you must cry out to God. That's what you need to do. You need to express your dependence on God and cry out to him. And again, this is the theme of this book, of these two books, written to people who long for joyful worship, right? Remember what the theme is. They long for joyful worship as one people, uh, joyful worship at one temple as one people under one king. Now look, here's what happens. Look at, first, look at the very next chapter, chapter 5. 
um, verse 18. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had, a valiant, had valiant men who carried shield and sword and drew the bow, expert in war, 44,760 able to go to war. They waged war against the Hagrites, Jetur, Nafish, and Nodab. And when, they, and when they prevailed over them, the Hagrites and all who were with them were given into their hands, for they what? Cried out to God in the battle, and he granted their urgent plea because they trusted in him. All right, jump over to chapter 14, same book. Chapter 14, verse 8. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went out against them. Now the Philistines had come and made a raid in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to him, Go up, and I'll give them into your hand. Notice, David inquired of God, or he called out to God. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 14. Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse uh, 7. And he he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with the walls and towers, gates, and bars. The land is still ours, because we have what? Sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us peace on every side. Um, well, I'm in the wrong verse, aren't I? And Asa had an army. Asa had an army, 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. Verse 9, Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marishah. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of um, Zephata at Marishah. And Asa, what? Cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. All right? So there you find, again, crying out. Why? To defeat the enemies. Look at chapter 20. Chapter 20, verses uh, 1 and 2. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Tazan Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Now drop down to verse 5. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham? Your friend, 
And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Now, you see this theme. He's saying, he starts with Jabez, and he says all the way through this book, you've got to cry out to God. You've got to cry out to God. You're this insignificant people. Cry out to God. All right? He says to them, like Jabez, ask God to enlarge your territory. Ask God to do that. God's not forgotten his covenant promises. The God who answered Jabez will answer you. He says to them, like Jabez, ask God to overturn the judgment that's on this nation. Ask him to do that. The God who answered Jabez will answer you. But now they know that the answer in this prayer hinges now on this king, on this Davidic king for which they hope. He will answer the promises that God has made. God will do with unimaginable splendor and glory all that he said he's going to do. So like Jabez, you, in your desperate situation, not seeing, you're thinking God's abandoned you, cry out to God. Ask him to do those same things, to remain true to his covenant promises. You do that. Now here's the point. Here's the last way we learn to pray like Jabez. We need to learn to pray like Jabez because Messiah has come. And so learn to pray in light of Jesus coming. Now let me just just say something. You should never read the Old Testament without the lens of Jesus on. Why? This has been one of the most important principles interpretation I've ever learned. It comes from Scripture itself, where Jesus said, Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember? Luke 24. And he says, as he's walking, he says, he showed them, they said, don't you know our king has died, right? The Christ has been crucified. Jesus, where have you been, this prophet? And he said, and then the text says, so then he took the Old Testament, from beginning, from Moses all the way to the end. And he showed them how it pointed to him. I think of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, I have come to fulfill, to fulfill the law and the prophets. That is a shorthanded way of saying, I've come to fulfill everything in the Old Testament. So never go to the Old Testament without the lens of Jesus on because it's pointing to him, okay? It's pointing to him. So what do we need to learn to pray in light of Jesus? We still need to cry out to God, (laughs) right? We still need to exercise our faith. Prayer expresses our dependence on God. Now, this congregation then needs to thirst for the presence and the power of God. You want to thirst for the presence and power of God. You need to cry out that his presence and power would be manifested here and that it would spread outward. You ought to make that part of your prayer. God, manifest your presence amongst us. Manifest your power. We, in essence, then pray as Jesus taught us to pray, right? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's essentially what we're praying. And we need to pray that our lives individually and as a congregation, that God would enlarge our territory or, more accurately, 
that God would fulfill his promises. That God would fulfill his promises. How will God ultimately fulfill that promise? Through Jesus. Because Jesus came, because Jesus came, the promise of land finds its fulfillment. You say, where in the world is that? Have you ever wondered about Matthew chapter 5, verse 5? Right? Blessed are the meek for what? They will inherit the world. What's our inheritance? The world. By the way, let me just say this. You know, and especially as Americans we do this, we, we just, not just our constitutional rights, we all think we're entitled to rights and we fight and we wrangle about it and we get in terrible, horrible fights about things. And Jesus says, look, be meek because you're going to get the whole thing anyway. Why fight and wrangle about it now? You're going to get the whole thing. In the end, you get it all. Right? And then, what do you do with... This is fascinating to me. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, and his offspring, that he would be heir, what? Of the world. Heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. What? I don't recall Abraham being promised the world. No. But there's a greater fulfillment. Jesus fulfills it in a way that they didn't see. We get the whole world. That land promised to to Abraham comes to us now, the descendants, the seed of Abraham, as the world. You get the whole world. Right? Right? So because of Jesus, that promise is going to be fulfilled. All right? But until then, God begins the fulfillment by calling a people to himself and extending his kingdom. He's getting people that will inhabit that world. And so like Jabez, we need to pray that God would fulfill his promise. And he will answer. We need to pray like Jabez that God would overturn judgment and curse. Now how does that work? We're not going to be completely free from the effects of the curse of sin, are we? No, not until Jesus comes. However, God can now use pain for his glory. For example, 2 Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians. This is a very familiar passage, but think about it in this light. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember, in the preceding chapter, Paul has listed everything that's happened to him, right? Stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, hungry, naked, all those things, all the horrible things that happened to him. And so here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should leave me, that it should leave me, pardon me, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
even in our pain, God will magnify himself. In our weaknesses, all these horrible things that happen, God will magnify himself. We can pray that that would be the case. We can pray that in God's redemptive plan, some of the curse will be overturned. I want you to think this with me. That God, even now, is working in ways that overturn the curse. Okay? In what ways? Well, when I go to, okay, when, when the Tower of Babel happened, humanity just split into all these different languages and cultures, right? It was all, it's just a crazy thing. But I know now, when I go to Romania, when I go to Romania in November, you know what I'm going to find? Even though with a lot of those folks, I don't know the same language, there's a kinship there that's already happening. There's something there that's already happening. You can sense that when you're with someone who's a brother or a sister in Christ. Do you ever wonder about um, the curse in Genesis chapter 3, verse uh, 16, where it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you? You know what that's about? That's about the battle of the sexes. It's about men and women doing this. Now, when it says your desire will be for him, it's not talking about sexual desire at all. Because in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, the same, the same phrase is used for Cain. Cain, get a, get a handle on this, or sin is creeping at your door. Sin is at your doorstep. It wants to have you. It wants to rule you. So that's what he's saying in Genesis 3.15. It's part of the curse. Women... You have this natural tendency to want to just rule. And when it says, and your husband will rule over you, okay, he's talking about tyranny. And your husband will want to tyrannize you, okay? You want to, you want to run the, the, the outfit, and he just wants to crush you under his thumb. Now, isn't it fascinating with that in mind? What do we find in Ephesians? Husbands what? Love your wives. In the realm of redemption, husbands do not tyrannize, do they? They give themselves in love to their wives. And what does it say to the wives? Submit, right? So do you see what I'm saying? In the realm of redemption, in many ways, in in several ways that we can look at, the curse is being reversed. The curse is being lifted, not completely, but in the realm of redemption, that's what happens, okay? We need to pray, oh God, do not let us be defined by your judgment, but by your blessing. You know, when I look at the book of Revelation, I look at the, the God's judgment, like the congreg- congregation at Ephesus, you've lost your first love, repent or I'll remove your candlestick, or candlestick, or the congregation at Laodicea, you're lukewarm, repent, or I'll remove your candlestick. They're defined by judgment. I said, God, don't define us by your judgment. Define us by your blessing. Help us to look to you. Bring blessing. Um, you know, if God would bring judgment upon this nation, this has always been my prayer. If God would bring judgment upon this nation, we ought to pray that in the midst of that judgment, this congregation would remain a vibrant witness for the Lord Jesus. Right? That's, those are the sorts of things we need to be praying for. 
You see, you can learn how to pray from Jabez. You can learn how to pray from him. Not enlarge my ministry, give me success. No. We need to see that through the lens of Jesus, the promised Messiah through whom God will keep all his promises. He's not merely the the Messiah of a discouraged Jewish remnant who lived centuries and centuries ago. But he is the Savior, the Messiah of the world. And through him, the grace of God appears and God fulfills all his promises. Because he died for sinners, we can pray to God and ask him. Because he is the Savior, he will overturn all pain and judgment and make us all on the earth whole and the earth whole again. But if we want to see the power and the presence of God in this congregation, in our lives, we have to, like Jabez, pray. Right? Father, thank you for your word. It speaks to us, living many centuries later, truth that we need to hear. Father, help us not just to hear this truth, but I pray that you would make us people of prayer who would pray that you would look powerful and mighty as your, as your hand works on our behalf for your glory, that we would look to your promises and believe them and pray according to them. Lord God, help us, I pray, to magnify Christ and look to him And we'll thank you in his name. Amen.